Our first lesson is from Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word of the Lord. stand for the reading of the gospel. The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. The holy gospel according to St. John in the 11th chapter beginning at the first verse. Glory be to thee, O Christ. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who believes who lives and believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? 
they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the Gospel of Christ. As we remain standing, I'll invite you to bow your heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak and reveal yourself to us. So I pray in light of that truth that I as preacher would just get out of the way. Far less of me, far more of you. That your people gathered would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Would you be seated please? As Orvin mentioned today, we come to the close of our series in the Gospel of John, and it's been such a joy over this past year to be able to mine the depths of this Gospel together as a community, for we have come to know more faithfully and truly and deeply Jesus, the King of a new creation. John has ordered his Gospel around seven signs seven key moments in Jesus' life that uniquely reveal his glory, who he is, and why he's come. And so fittingly, we close our series with the last sign, the seventh sign. Seven being a biblical number that represents fullness, completeness. This sign fully, completely reveals Jesus' glory. So I'll invite you to either turn in your Bibles or in your phones or in your pew Bibles that you'll have in front of you to page 104 to that chapter uh, 11 of John that was just read for us. And we're going to be seeing in this chapter the mystery of his love, the ministry of his love, and the magnitude of his love. The mystery, the ministry, and the magnitude of Jesus' love. So first, the mystery of his love. The world is not as it should be, right? Our, our lives are not as they should be, right? We look out at our world and our lives and we think if, if God is good and loving, our world, our lives should not 
be this way? How can there be a good and loving God when our world is full of war, violence, oppression, poverty, inequality? How can there be a good and loving God when this thing and the other thing and that thing is happening or is, has happened to me? For many, this becomes the lock and shut case for disproving the existence of God, at least a biblical vision of God, a God who is all-loving, all-powerful, and all-good. The reality of our world, our lives, it is said, disproves the existence of such a God. But John does not shy away from entering into the mystery of such a reality. In fact, he steps right into it, faces it head on. Verse 1. In the town of Bethany, there lived a family, a brother, Lazarus, and two sisters, Mary and Martha. They were deeply loved by Jesus. The brother, Lazarus, became deathly ill, and his life was hanging in the balance, and Martha and Mary, the sisters, stand for Jesus with a very specific message. The one whom you love is ill. The one whom you love is ill. What does Jesus do? What is his response in the face of the plight of the one that he loves? Well, at first, he seems rather dismissive, right? Oh, don't worry about it. This, this illness won't lead to death. Really? It most certainly does. This is for the glory of God, he continues. This will reveal fully who I am and why I've come. Can you imagine for a moment these messengers coming back to these sisters. What did he do? What what did he say when you told him the one he loved was ill? He was dismissive. Really? I mean, that's not what love does. In case we missed the scandal, the mystery of it all, John highlights it in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, He loved them so. He loved them so. This is what his love of them led him to do. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was two more days. What? John has the audacity to say that it is love that motivates him to linger two more days. It is love that motivates him to allow Lazarus to die. It is love that motivates him to not keep these sisters from the sorrow of facing the death of their beloved brother. Really? I mean, it's scandalous. This is not what love does. We may rightly roll our eyes at the proponents of the prosperity gospel who say, come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, and you'll be wealthy. But much of Western Christianity has been formed by its theological cousin, moralistic therapeutic deism, which at its most basic level tells us that it's God's job to keep us happy, or at least to keep bad stuff from happening to us. And so if we aren't happy, 
And if bad stuff is not is happening to us, well then, either it's our fault, we haven't been living the moral life and we're being punished for it, or it's God's fault, he hasn't been living up to his end of the bargain. But this is not the God that John is revealing. Our circumstances, our feelings can't be relied upon for determining God's love for us. There may be a thousand and one reasons why God allows or causes or directs, reasons that are likely far beyond our comprehension. But none of those reasons will be because he doesn't love us. None of those reasons will be because he doesn't care. When we look out at our world and our lives and wonder, how can there be a good and loving God for this is not what love does? John invites us to embrace the mystery, to not run from it, such that we would open our eyes to see what love does. So what does love do? How does Jesus' love of this family get expressed? What is the ministry of his love? Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, the funeral was in full swing. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. It's a key detail. There was a Jewish belief at the time that the soul lingered around the body for three days seeking for an opportunity to once again reanimate the corpse. But after four days, the corpse had decomposed beyond recognition, and the soul would leave, never to return again. Lazarus had been dead four days, beyond any conceivable rescue. Now news of Jesus' approach reaches Mary and Martha. Uh, Martha comes out to meet him, but Mary stays home. And Martha comes to Jesus with a very bold statement, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Is it a statement of reproach or deep faith? We may never know. It's probably a bit of both. But his loving response to Martha is to enter into conversation with her about biblical truth. He says, your brother will rise again. And she follows right along with him. I I know that. Like you, I'm a faithful Jew, and I know that the dead will rise on the last day. You might expect Jesus at this point to respond, "Well, well, that's great, Martha. Hang on to that hope in the midst of your grief. But he doesn't. He carries her further. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What's he saying? In some ways, he's saying, Martha, your hope needs to get expanded. You need to extend the horizons of your hope. For I have a hope that is far more glorious than the dead rising on the last day. For in me and through me, all that is wrong will be righted. All that has been undone will be remade. All the tears that have been shed will be wiped away. All death and disease and pain and suffering will be redeemed. Everything will be far better than you could possibly imagine. 
Not only does he extend the horizons of her hope, he invites her to take that future hope and bring it into the present. Martha, this hope, this new life, this resurrection just, just isn't just a future reality. This is something you can know and possess right now. You can have in me a new life that never goes out, a new life that death can't extinguish. For when my spirit enters your light, life, you will be changed from one degree of splendor to another until that moment of physical death when you're ushered into the presence of the living God and are shot through with his love, with his peace, with his joy, with his power. This kind of life can start right now, Martha. In your grief, grab a hold of a hope that isn't just a future reality, but is a present one as well. Jesus' love invites us to apprehend truth, a hope-filled truth that Dostoevsky articulated in his novel, The Brothers Komorozov, when he writes this. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. But all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Jesus' love invites us to apprehend truth, a hope-filled truth that C.S. Lewis articulates in his book, Mere Christianity, when he writes, if we let him, he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That is what we were made for. Nothing less. Jesus' love invites Martha, invites us to apprehend hope-filled truth. This is only a part of his ministry of love. With Mary, his love gets expressed very differently. In verse 32, Mary as well joins Jesus on the road, and she approaches Jesus with the exact same statement as her sister. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But hardly a word passes between them. No conversation about resurrection and life. No invitation to apprehend hope. Jesus simply sees her. Holds her grief. Is deeply moved. And literally bursts into tears. Now at this point, the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because Jesus knows in just a moment he's going to step up to the tomb He's going to speak to death, and death is going to be undone. 
Why does he take the time to weep with Mary when he knows in just a few moments her sorrow will turn to shouts of joy? Because of his love. In love, he is present with her in this moment. In love, he's so bound up his heart with hers that he enters in. Weeps as she weeps, grieves as she grieves, sorrows as she sorrows. There's this beautiful line in one of the Psalms, Psalm 56, where it says that God catches each one of our tears in his bottle. He knows every single tear that has come down our cheeks. Our sorrows, our tears, then are ever present before him. Is it one of that, one of the beautiful implications of the incarnation? That God in flesh has enfleshed himself in Jesus, has entered in, is with us in our griefs, our sorrows. This is what love does. This is the ministry of Jesus' love. In love, he invites us to apprehend hope-filled truth. And in love, he enters in, is fully present to the core of his own being with our griefs, our sorrows, our tears. And as followers of Jesus, we are called in our love of one another, in our love of our neighbors, to that same ministry of love that is a ministry of both truth and tears. Now, by temperament, we will often lean one way or the other, toward truth or toward tears. By temperament, I lean more toward truth. Come alongside people and say, here's who you need to see yourself to be in light of who Jesus is. Here's the sin you need to repent of to receive his forgiveness. Here's the promise that he's given the need to hold on to, to lift you out of despair. At times that works, and at other times it falls on an unreceptive heart. Why? Because the other person often doesn't feel understood. Or that I've entered into the sorrow of what they're facing. But others of us by temperament, lean more toward tears. We will grieve with those who grieve, and the other will be left feeling understood and loved and cared for. But truth doesn't always get spoken into it. There's no new perspective to receive, no pathway forward, no invitation to invite Jesus into the center of that situation. Love requires both truth and tears, and the wisdom to know which to apply with whom and when. Jesus knew in that moment that Martha needed truth and that Mary needed tears. May we be formed by Jesus in that same ministry of love. May we be formed by Jesus in the wisdom to know how to love. Now, it was this deep expression of love that precipitated, gathered mourners to exclaim in verse 36, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. But they hadn't seen anything yet. They were about to behold 
the magnitude of his love. At the end of the story in verse 38, Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb, and we're told that he was deeply moved again. But our English translators are uncomfortable with the Greek there that expresses Jesus' emotion. For the Greek doesn't express tears. The Greek expresses anger, rage. It was a word that was used to speak of a horse snorting, a battle horse snorting before it entered into the conflict. Jesus steps up to Lazarus' tomb and he snorts. He trembles with rage. Rage at what? The mourners for their lack of faith? No. Rage at himself for not coming on time? No. Rage at death. Rage at what was destroying his creation. Rage at what God never intended. Sin and rebellion, the result of our sin. And he trembles with rage at its reality. As reformer John Calvin put it, he rages like a champion preparing for conflict. And as he speaks to death, as he calls Lazarus forth from the tomb, as he interrupts this funeral with resurrection, he sets the wheels in motion toward his own death. As chapter 11 goes on to tell us that it was this moment that precipitated the religious leaders plotting his demise. His raging at death takes him to a cross. Whereas our champion, he takes on sin and death and hell and by his resurrection dismantles their power forever. My preparation... This week I came across a poem written by Anglican poets and pastor George Herbert. It's a Christian's dialogue with death in light of Jesus' raging at death that takes him to a cross and a subsequent resurrection. In Herbert's dialogue with death, the Christian speaks first. Alas, per death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? To which death responds, Alas, poor mortal, void of story, go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Poor death, and who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Let losers talk, death retorts, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. Spare not, the answer comes. Do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse that thou shalt be no more. We shall one day be better than before. And death shall be no more. Jesus weeps at Lazarus' grave, and the mourners exclaim, see how he loved him. Jesus rages at death, which takes him to a cross to die our death, that death might be defeated, and we are invited to exclaim, see how he loves us. See how he loves us.
see the magnitude of his love. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services. 